Hi, this is Kristen Olson, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Well, today on the show, we're talking to Kristen Olsen. Uh, she is a an award-winning freelance journalist and the author of The Soil Will Save Us, How Farmers, Scientists and Foodies Are Healing the Soil to Save the Planet. So Kristen writes on a variety of topics, but I was interested in in talking to her specifically about this book and the subjects in this book. Uh, We talk about her writing career and how she came to write the book. Also, we talk about how she was inspired specifically by a farmer named Gabe Brown. Now, if any of you are into soil, you'll know Gabe Brown. He's at the forefront of regenerative agriculture and specifically cover crops. So she was inspired by him and what he did on his farm. And we get into climate change and the whole uh, talk about that. That's, you know, a main part of her book there. And then we get into the similarities between our microbiome and the soil microbiome. Uh, We've got some more great interviews lined up for you as well. The next one I'm excited to share with you is all about kefir and fermentation. But just to share a few of the projects that I have on the go, um, I've been getting lots into fermentation lately actually, and I've put on a big batch of mead for Christmas. So that's obviously an alcoholic fermentation and debatable whether it's great for your microbiome. It's definitely got yeast in there, but um, I made some last year and everybody loved it. So this year I went and I'm making 60 litres of mead. Um, And I'm also playing around with a lacto-fermented drink, uh, which someone uh, shared with me the idea of, and I looked it up on YouTube and I was like, wow, this is really easy. Lacto-fermented drink, a bit of organic rice, some sugar and some salt, and it makes a really nice fizzy drink, a, a little bit of an umami flavor. Uh, so yeah, just playing around with that, uh, getting some probiotics in my life that way, and also as well as growing mushrooms. So, you know, working towards creating a probiotic life. And I also love to hear about what you're doing to create a probiotic life. So definitely reach out, uh, connect, share with us what you're doing and or, or what sort of mindsets are changing for you as you create a probiotic life. Also, as you know, on this podcast, we're really connecting the dots between soil health and human health. You can tell the health of the soil by the amount of microbes in the soil or the microbial biomass. So you can do this if you take a soil sample to a regular uh, lab. A test can cost $100 to $150. But you can also do that with a really cool little thing called a microbiometer 
and they work out to $10 a test. The reason I mentioned that is because we've set up an affiliate deal with them. So you can check them out at microbiometer.com. And if you enter the promo code probiotic life, you'll get $10 off your purchase, which is essentially doing one test for free. You'll be able to monitor the soil, your soil microbial biomass accurately. And you'll also be supporting the podcast when you use the promo code. Also want to say thank you to Phil and his band Confiture for delivering some soulful vibes in this episode. You can check them out at confitureband.com. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Kristen Olsen. Our guest today is an award-winning freelance journalist, author, and fiction writer who has written for many well-regarded publications. She is the author of the book, The Soil Will Save Us, How Scientists, Farmers, and Foodies Are Healing the Soil to Save the Planet. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you, Benjamin. And um, you're up in uh, Portland, Oregon, is that right? I'm in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful, pretty green Portland, Oregon. We uh, recently talked to Peter McCoy, who's up there as well. Do you know him? I don't. Uh, he uh, is one of the founders of Radical Mycology. And so he uh-huh. he uh, is teaches all about mycology practical applications. Um, and what a good place to do that in Port- Portland where it rains so much. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's true. When I take my dogs out for a walk after it's rained, there are just mushrooms popping up everywhere. It's it's a little surreal sometimes. Yeah, so um, the reason I wanted to talk to you, Kristen, you know, this is the probiotic life. We talk about uh, microbes and, and really how nature is connected. We're inextricably connected to nature and... Um, want to talk about your book that you wrote a few years ago, The Soil Will Save Us. But before we do that, I'd like to just get a little bit of a, a background on um, how did you get into um, writing this book, but write, uh, writing in, in the beginning? Oh, writing in the beginning. I think I've always liked to write. You know, I always, uh, my sister and I were very different. You know, I would... Uh, wait until the last minute and then write a school paper (laughs) overnight in the closet, but love that experience. I loved that experience of writing the school paper and my, my sister hated it. She said, I can't, what's the matter with you? Why do you like doing that? So I have always kind of liked that. I've always liked the, the exercise of, um, you know, sort of thinking that's when I do my best thinking is when I'm trying to, you know, pull that, vague that that cloudy idea stuff in your head and 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 form it into to words that's when i really start to understand better and dive deep more deeply into those ideas so i've always really liked the process of doing that and i did some writing 
um, in high school and in college for school newspapers and all of that and did some writing for little community newspapers when I got out of college and, you know, sooner or later started to get bigger and better freelancing gigs. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've written from everywhere from the New York Times to Oprah to a new scientist. Um, yeah. So, so you, you enjoy doing that and you've made it your, life, your life's work. Right. I have made it my life's work. Uh, you know, one of the first really big pieces that I wrote, in fact, it was probably the biggest piece that I wrote early in my career. There was this general interest magazine that a local university put out and they asked me if I would, if I'd be interested in writing an article about um, this experiment that was going. So I lived at that time in Cleveland, Ohio. So there there are these salt mines that extend out underneath Lake Erie um, in Cleveland, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet down. So there were these uh, particle physics experiments that were going on deep in these salt mines underneath Lake Erie. And um, so this editor asked me to write an article about that. And I, I would describe to my friend, you know, my friends, uh, that I would be working on this. And I really had no understanding of, of (laughs) particle physics at all when I started writing this. And I would describe to my friends that every day I'd be working on this article, I would have a particle physics headache because the, the ideas were just so different from anything I'd had to work with before. But that was, yeah. So I, I really, I have made a career out of writing about things uh, you know, for the most part, things that I don't understand that well going into it. And the soil book was the same way. Um, the soil book book started. Um, I was, you know, I was always interested in the, you know, concerned about the environment and interested in the way food was raised. And uh, my grandparents had been, had been farmers and my parents were these avid, crazy gardeners um, so I was always interested in both of those things, the environment and how food was raised. And um, I had written an article about this one chef in Cleveland about his restaurant. And he was one of those first restaurants to start um, making all their uh, all their dishes from local and organic ingredients, you know, back mm. in the guess in the early, early eighties. Um, and anyway, he, he was somebody who was really passionately involved with how food was raised. Um, you know, what kind of pastures cattle were grazing on and, you know, what kind of soil was there. And, um, because he had been, he had been raised on a dairy farm in Ohio and sort of knew, um, how much firsthand, how much the health of the land determined the not only the healthfulness of the food that he was preparing, but the quality of it and the beauty of it and the sustainability of the farm. So anyway, he was he was a real pioneer in that way. And um, so I had written about him for Gourmet Magazine and uh, and he and I stayed in touch and I was really always interested in hearing his ideas on what important things were going on in terms of raising healthy food that that was also healthy for landscapes and and one day I called him and he said carbon farming that's what all these all these uh, progressive farmers are talking about they're talking about farming that puts more carbon into the soil than 
and it takes out, you know, that puts more um, carbon into the soil and, and restores the health of the land. So I thought that was just like a perfect marriage of all the things that I was already interested in. So it was like all these things was um, in your mind swirling around and this was the thing, the catalyst that was really like, yes, I could write a book about this. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I mean, and again, I didn't really understand it that well when I first heard the idea, you know, when I, when he, he talked about carbon farming, I thought, oh my God, could that be, could that be one solution to the climate crisis? You know, could that be one solution to the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Um, you know, so many of our, of our lands around the world are devoted to agriculture, but if agriculture were doing it in a, in a healthy and regenerative, I didn't know that word then, but, um, I came to learn that word when I was working on the book. You know, if if all these agricultural lands could be producing the same food and fiber and um, other things uh, in a way that was healing landscapes and putting carbon back in the ground, couldn't that be one of the solutions to the climate crisis? So, uh, yeah, I was really excited about that. Although, as I say, when I first started working on the book, I, I didn't really understand how that happened. Mm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned that your grandparents were farmers. Did you have experience um, on their farm? Was that was that a part of your life growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My parents would go out there and, and uh, visit them. It was my father's parents. And, uh, and they, they had a little farm and they had, they had cattle and they, they raised a lot of, uh, of, uh, things that started with P, like they had a pumpkin field and they had a, a grove of, of pomegranate trees and they had persimmons. I think they also had some nut trees. Um, they had chickens. So yeah, we would go out and visit them. And every once in a while, uh, my parents would leave me there overnight or for a weekend with my grandparents. Mm. Um, and so I would help my grandfather gather the eggs and, uh, you know, and then cause him some trouble sometimes, like, you know, going in to visit the cattle but and leaving the gate open. Whoops. Um, yeah, whoops. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was always a really wonderful – that was a wonderful experience. I loved that little farm. Mm. And so then uh, when you started writing the book, you started reaching out to farmers as well. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I started reaching out to farmers. I mean, I started doing two things. I started reaching out to farmers who were – uh, really becoming activists in terms of um, they were becoming activists. Oh, in so many ways, they were becoming activists in um, reaching out to scientists and other farmers to try to get a better understanding of how to manage their land and and work with nature to make it healthier. So they were becoming active in that way. They were. Um, organizing conferences and, uh, you know, talking to each other about this stuff. And they were also getting, you know, somewhat active uh, in political ways, you know, pushing for pushing for government to uh, help farmers that were doing it the right way. So, yes, I did start to reach out to those farmers. And I started to also reach out to scientists that were doing starting to do some research about um this kind of agriculture, this kind of agriculture that can um, 
make lands healthier. So it was really interesting, though, because when I first started doing the, you know, I called these different scientists and I would go to conferences where um, I would knew that some of these scientists might be. Um, and I remember this one scientist saying, well, you know, really, it's the farmers who are fa much farther ahead on this stuff than, than science. You know, mm. science has not been paying enough attention to this uh, area of research. And it, that's still definitely true. Um, I mean, it's less true now than it was then. But uh, he said, you know, it's really the farmers that are making the big discoveries and really pushing pushing the, the thinking um, ahead in the, in the biggest way about how our agriculture could be very different. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, on the show we have talked to um, Joel Salatin and, and that was a great revelation for me to understand the way he does that. Was there any sort of um, way along the point where you were talking to, whether it was a farmer or a scientist, where something really clicked for you? It was like, oh, this really makes sense now. Um, well, I went and visited a farmer in um, North Dakota who you might want to have on your show, Gabe Brown. He's just a, a, a brilliant, brilliant farmer. And mm, um, when, I went and, when I went and visited his farm – you know, I just learned, I learned so much and so many people learn so much from him. Um, so he, let me see, how many years is it now? Maybe 20 years ago, he uh, married a farmer's daughter and he um, bought, was buying some of his father-in-law's land to have his own farm. And, and he just had four terrible years right at the very beginning, just four horrible years. You know, one year there was drought and he, and he lost all his crops and another year there was hail and he lost all his crops. And another year there was late frost and he lost all his crops. Another year there was, you know, another year of drought and he lost all his crops. And he really had to give up a lot of the a lot of the farming practices that he had been taught in agriculture school that, you know, taught that this is the way to have a successful farm. So he stopped using fertilizer and he stopped using all those killing chemicals, you know, the fungicides and the herbicides and the pesticides. He stopped using all that stuff um, just because he couldn't afford it anymore. Mm. Um, and, and he had, when he first started farming, he had gone from tilling his land to going no-till because he just observed that his his lands got so much drier when uh when he was tilling and he thought well that can't be good so he you know he he made the costly conversion from tillage equipment to no-till equipment he sold all his his big machines that used to you know dig up the earth so that he could plant so he he went completely no-till before this terrible four years um, every year when his crops would fail because of the hail or the frost or the drought, um, he would take his cattle in to, to eat up those ruined crops. So he wouldn't, he, you know, he wouldn't go out there and do anything more with his big machines to, to carry away that, and he wouldn't till it back in. He had his animals come in and eat it. So he started doing some things without even realizing it. He started doing some things that were making the land healthier. One thing was cutting out all those chemicals, and another was bringing in the animals to, to eat the ruined crops because they were, you know, they're, they're 
pooping on it, they're urinating on it, they're stomping um, that crop residue down into the soil. They're doing things that are healthy for the land. Um, he was also, um, he also thought he, he might be able to make his land healthier and restore some of the resilience to it by uh, planting cover crops. So he started planting cover crops and he would have his cattle uh, come in and clear away the crop, cover crops before he planted. And so he started doing these things and he started to turn around his land. He started to realize that um, everything that he had been using, all those chemicals and the fertilizer and the tillage for, all those things that he had been doing, nature was now doing for him because the land was getting healthier and healthier. So, um, you know, the soil started to become much more friable and that all those microbes living around the plants and that are carrying on this very, I mean, he didn't realize this at first, but they're carrying on this very active mutualistic relationship with the plants. They're, you know, uh, breaking things down in the soil and making making minerals available to the plants. They're um, uh, creating habitat in the soil for themselves, but that habitat um, causes a, a honeycomb kind of structure in soils. They're re-engineering soils by doing that, and that re-engineering holds water and it, um, you know, makes it much easier for plants to move their roots. And um, the, the beneficial symbiotic fungi that are in the soil are um, much, uh, much more likely to form greater relationships with plants and link them to other plants and, you know, be moving water and um, chemicals that the plants need and nutrients around in the soil. So that whole underground ecosystem in the soil of all those microorganisms was getting denser and richer and more active. Um, so anyway, that continued. Then he, you know, he's, he's a great farmer in another way is not, not only is he extremely observant of what's going on on his land, but he was eager to work with scientists, um, eager to, to find out what they knew about what was going on. And in turn, they were eager to work with him, to work with a practitioner who was really um, thinking in the deepest ways about those relationships that go on in nature that allow, you know, allow people to farm. You know, that's, what's, that, what, that's what we're doing when we're farming is we're engaging with nature. We're engaging with natural laws to, to produce food for ourselves. So, um, you know, over the course of the next couple of decades, I mean, he's at this point now where he raises more, um, he raises more per acre, more, more food per acre than the county average. And, but he does that at a, you know, a, a much, much lower cost than any of the farmers around him could do because he's not spending all that money on, on chemicals and he's not spending all that money on the diesel for big machines. Um, he's, he's really relying on those relationships in nature, which are, you know, mostly microorganisms, mm. um, to, to keep his farm healthy and productive. Yeah. So it really sounds like, um, it was through, uh, the adversity of the, f the first couple of, or four or five years that he was able to make that switch and, and do something different than what all of his neighbors were doing. Right. And I think that that's true for so many people who make a switch, you know, so many people, I mean, I think it's true for all of us, you know, we'll go along, 
we might have an idea like, oh, I could make this change. Yeah, maybe I'll think about making that change. But, you know, for most of us, it's pretty hard if we're comfortable enough doing things the same old way and we're not threatened by anything doing things the same old way. And most of us are just sort of comfortable moving along in the same way. But, you know, if we're faced with a crisis, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make some changes pretty quickly. We'll make big changes pretty quickly. So that, and that's what he had to do. Mm-hmm. And um, just to, to take that idea and run with it for a moment, um, you know, the whole idea about climate change is something that's almost out, outside of our, our, of our consciousness because it is um, really on a geologic sort of time. You know, we talked to um, Dr. David Montgomery and he, mm-hmm. talk, he talks about the idea of um, geologic time of, of where like a blip where a second in, in the time. Um, what have you found that really sort of uh, engages people to connect with this this idea of climate change being over <clears throat> hundreds or thousands of years? Um, you mean in terms of making changes in their own lives? That's, that's right, yeah. So taking yeah, the I- idea of climate change, which is so out there and bringing it down into their, you know, their life. You know, I think that one problem is that there are so many people who are convinced that climate change is uh, an existential threat, you know, that it is a, it's something that is threatening, you know, our existence as a species, um, but they don't quite know what to do about it. On the other hand, there are a lot of these farmers who are making the same kinds of changes that Gabe Brown has made. In fact, there are some farmers that I talked to in Australia who are making these same changes on their land. They're not doing it because, I mean, that's the beauty of this whole carbon farming uh, approach, this regenerative agriculture approach. They're not making those changes on their land because they're trying to um, do their part to help with climate change, to, to combat climate change. But in fact, they are. What they're they are making these changes in the same way that he did. You know, they are trying to make their land more resilient. They're trying to be more profitable as farmers. They're trying to not lose the farm. Um, in the process, they are you know contributing to one of the great solutions that's in front of us. Mm-hmm. So it's really not about climate change in the. Um immediate picture it's about um having resilient land having having more nutrient dense food and definitely overall result is that uh, we're actually moving in the right direction towards um or away from at least human-made climate change right and the thing that's so the thing that's been so great about the farmers that i've talked to um who are at some point along this road you know they're they're um I mean, as as climate as as weather becomes so much more unpredictable and and extreme, you know, extreme droughts, extreme downpours. You know, it seems like there's never anything that's just sort of the calm old weather that that some of us grew up with. You know, where mm. there would be like here in Portland, Oregon. You know, people who have lived here a long time say, well, you know, it used to just sort of 
it was kind of like every day there would be a little bit of rain, a little spritz of rain. And, and then, you know, and then the, the, the rest of the weather would be kind of nice. Now there are these intense periods of dryness, very intense periods of dryness where um, in the, the landscapes around Portland, um, the, the fire danger is very, very high. Um, so there's, there's these long, really dry periods. And then when it rains, it's just a pounding downpour. And so mm. those, those situations are, are, uh, happening for, for farmers all over the world. And it's, it's, you know, it's a terrible thing to have to deal with because, um, you know, drought is obviously very bad, but when the rain comes in and pounds you like that, um, where you get, you know, 10 inches in 10 hours, if that's possible, um, that water will hit the, unless the soil is really good, unless the soil is really good and the, the and it's covered with vegetation, it's not going to hold on to that water. That water will hit the ground and just roll off and head to the bottom of the watershed. So um, there's so many reasons that farmers around the world are really um, reevaluating the practices that they have been shown, you know, that their governments have uh, have encouraged and supported with tax dollars that they learned in agriculture school um, that they're that are still being promoted by big ag, you know, agribusiness. Um, but so many farmers are reevaluating all those old practices that make the land sick and that disrupt our relationship with microorganisms. I mean, that's what we're doing when we're farming. We're engaging with this microbial community that's, um, that's helping to grow the plants. You know, Gabe Brown, one of, one of my favorite things that he always says is uh, when he's farming that he has two herds and the herd, you know, he has his cattle. I, I don't know how many cattle he has now, but I think he had maybe 500 when I, when I saw him. Um, that he had his herd of cattle, but really that he's really managing his his land for the herd that's underneath the ground, and that's his herd of microorganisms. He really mm. wants to make sure that they are doing well, um, because if they're not doing well, you know, nothing nothing else that he's trying to raise above ground is going to do well. Mm. It's very interesting uh, that you mentioned that too. The you know the whole concept of the soil being alive and very similar to our own microbiome with our gut. I, I, I've seen that you've written a bit about the microbiome. Can you sh uh, explain to us a little bit about that, about the, the uh, similarities between the soil and our own microbiome? Yeah, uh, you know, it's really so amazing uh, because there's just so many things that we didn't know even 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think, I think back about, you know, about, doctors dealing with patients 10, 15 years ago, and they had no idea that we had this microbial population in us and on us. And it's something like a hundred trillion microbes in us and on us. And it's bacteria, it's fungi, it's yeasts, it's um, virus, it's um, archai it's it's all these tiny tiny microscopic things that live in us and on us um that uh have been part of humans in fact every every animal every plant has a microbiome um 
and for the for humans you know it's we it, most of it is in our gut and we mostly think of it as in our gut but you know we also have different microbiomes all over our bodies we have microbiomes in our mouth that are different from the ones in our gut we have microbiomes in the crease of our of our elbows um that are different from the microbiomes in our mouth or that are in our gut the microbiomes in my in the crease of my elbow and the crease of your elbow are more similar than the microbiomes between you know in my gut and on my arm so you know there are these these complex communities of organisms that are part of us and that have always been part of us and in fact scientists who are studying um you know in that are engaged in this new science of uh, the microbiome are now talk about humans as holobionts, you know, and, 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 and all animals, all animals that have microbiomes and plants that have microbiomes. We're, we're, we're not just, it's that they say that it's even wrong to think of it as a host and a microbial community that we're so, that our fates and our, and the, the life crisis processes are so completely engaged that we are, it's much more uh, correct to think of us as one, as one ecosystem. So holo means whole and biont means life. So it's a whole life system. Um, and yeah, you know, scientists are discovering things all the time about how important that microbiome is to us. It, you know, it's important for regulating our immune system. It's important for um, re regulating our metabolism. It's, it, you know, it's important for, um, the way our brains function. It's important for just about every trait that we have. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. The idea of holobiont, the, yeah. it just makes me think, you know, like, um, the, the earth is like that. And, you know, do we think of it as one organism or do we, do we think of it as we're all individual? And I think the same thing with a lot of, um, indigenous cultures, they, they under they had an, an innate understanding of everything connected like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Modern science is just sort of coming around to that, you know, and it's really amazing because for such a long time, um, when scientists would, uh, Think about when when all of us would think of of uh, microbes of germs, we would think, oh, disease, it's bad. But really, most of the microbes that are in us and on us, most of the microbes, period, are either benign or helpful to us. You know, if if there were if they were not benign or helpful, you know, we'd be dead. I mean, we just wouldn't have a shot because, as one scientist. Uh, I just read said, you know, we are beings that are embedded in a microbial world. It's their world. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, it's it, interesting, you know, the probiotic life, the idea of probiotics. Well, um, the more that the more that I have these conversations with people like you, Kristen, to see that it it's about creating life, connecting, reconnecting with the life that's around us. Um, or at least uh, breaking down that barrier, thinking that we're separate from the life around us. Right. So, so I'm I'm interested, uh, you know, sort of taking that idea of co connected with the life around us. What what have you seen in your travels as you talk, um, give talks and stuff? So you, you're talking about farmers 
and scientists, but what about people who are living in an urban environment? Um, what do they do or how is their response to your book and what do they do with that information? You know, I think people in an urban environment are uh, more and more trying to think about that, uh, how that urban environment, you know, we can't, we can't um, create uh, urban environments that are uh, the concrete jungles that we used to think that, you know, we used to sort of write off the urban environment. Oh, it, you know, it's, it's overbuilt. It's blah, blah, blah. It's, that's the way it is. And I think that more and more people are realizing that the same kinds of natural processes um, need to go on in cities. So um, here in Portland, one of the things that I love that the city is doing is, is uh, putting in um, swales and, and rain gardens all over the city to capture water instead of culvert, you know, piping it and culverting it away as wastewater, really trying to let that water sink back into the soil so that it's there for the, the very healthy uh, urban tree population that we have. Um, I think that people in cities are, you know, especially I see it around here. I mean, maybe Portland, I think, is probably um, ahead of the curve in some ways, but, but I think all cities are are trying to do this, you know, to put in more trees, to have more food growing in cities, to have mm. more, to, to let people uh, have more animals in cities. I mean, I think I, you know, it used to be in cities that uh, the idea of having some chickens or a goat in your backyard was just insane. And now that's going on kind of all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, progression in Portland and I definitely know in the Pacific Northwest it seems like that me uh you know growing up in Vancouver seeing that and then here in Perth Western Australia um sometimes I get frustrated that you know we're the the most isolated city in the world but maybe that's a good thing that we can uh leapfrog forward a little bit yeah, I mean, there are great practices going on all over the You know, one of the things that I get really excited about when I see it here in Portland is that, you know, they've put up like big buildings that have sort of like a scaffolding on the side where vines are growing up. I mean, that's mm. just so great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so great to have life climbing up the side of a building. Mm. Mm-hmm. And also um, in coming back to... Uh, the kitchen and to chefs, you know, the place that I work at Perth City Farm, we have uh, one of the guys there, Tim, who I actually interviewed on the podcast, has is running a program from farm to fork. So how do we uh, bring food and how do we process food? How do we understand the, the process of food from the farm, from the soil back into our bodies again? Yeah, that's great. Hmm. So you're touring around, touring around, uh, talking about your book, giving readings of your book. Now, what are the, some of the common themes that you uh, notice people want to talk to you about when they when they talk to you about this book? Um, you know, I think that people do just get. I, I think that people more and more are understanding that. You know, we humans have a microbiome and that that microbial 
population that's in us and on us is very important to our health. And and I think that they do get really excited understanding that that applies to to all these other living things in the world around us, you know, so that when we walk around, we have a garden, you know, or we're walking down the sidewalk and there are trees, you know, each of those, each of those living things around us all also has a microbiome. And it's not just, I mean, my book was called Soil Will Save Us, but I'm also finding, I'm working on another book now about um, relationships in nature and cooperation in nature, because I think um, so many people have grown up um, because of their, because of what they learned in school about evolution and Darwinism, people have an idea that nature is all about competition. It's all about red and tooth, tooth and claw. And the whole aspect of cooperation and relationship in nature has really been not ignored, but it's been um, understudied. And I think that's, that's changing a lot. So, um, so I'm working on this book now to, to, look at that question and to look at really uh, cooperative, important relationships that are going on in nature all the time. And, and one of the things that I've found is that it's, it's not that, that incredible relationship that's going on uh, between plants and the, the microbes in the soil. Um, that that's just one relationship that's going on there. There are microbes, there are also bacteria and fungi that are living on and inside the leaves and the, the, the bark of trees that are providing services to those trees. Like there, there's a scientist um, in Washington state who did some, was trying to figure out why um, these trees, these poplar trees growing on very, very poor land, why they were doing so well, you know, why they were able to succeed in this pretty harsh environment without um, good soil underneath. So she was, uh, she was, she was uh, taking the leaves off the tree and sort of trying to figure out something about the leaves. And she kept finding this bacterial scum that was, in these, you know, coming out of these leaves. And at first she thought, oh, you know, I got to figure out what this is because I want to kill it so I can study this other thing that I'm trying to study with these leaves. But then she she realized that these, the bacteria were coming from the inside of the leaves. And she figured out that the bacteria were there inside the leaves um, and they were taking nitrogen from the atmosphere and converting it into a form that those that was fertilizing the trees through the leaves. So that's that's really a very 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 new understanding of mm. of, of of other uh, really important um, relationships going on in nature that are life affirming. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I think that, that people are just thrilled to find this out over and over that that we have these hidden microbial partners that are everywhere sort of tr- keeping the planet going. It's really interesting, too, because it, it, even just one little bit of information like that could change the way that we um, do agriculture. You know, each each one of these discoveries is like, oh, 
This actually changes the way that we understand the way plants are fertilized or the, the way that uh, plants uh, communicate through, their, through the uh, fungal hyphae. Right. Hmm. So, um, it's, so it's interesting you, you talk about that. The, the, I was reading this book called The Secret Life of Your Microbiome mm-hmm. and, and a, con- a concept that um, I had heard before but really uh, made it clear to me um, the Japanese have a word for, um, I call it forest bathing, shinrin-joku, the idea of going out into nature and basically imbibing the what's around you. And now they're studying, they've done all these studies to see that, yeah, just actually walking through the forest or the bushland, wherever you are, um, it, it can actually affect your microbiome. And right. so, and so um, tying that back into what we were talking about, you know, it's like there's the scientific side of it, but then there's also all these cultures around the world who've who've known this um, implicitly, or um, somehow they've they've uh, gotten un- in tune to this without the science. There have have you found that in um, in your studies? Yeah, I love that whole uh, forest bathing and and. You know, just the any any getting out in nature, I think, is just so important. And and I love it that it's you know I think that we always used to assume that um, we felt better after walking in the woods or walking in a meadow, uh, you know, working in our gardens. We always assumed that we felt better doing that for psychological reasons. You know that that somehow the the, the looking at you know beautiful nature was lifting our spirits but now we're we're starting to understand more and more that it's a physiological response too that because we're engaging with nature in a forest in a meadow in our gardens we're engaging with nature we're also um coming into contact with helpful microorganisms that may not live in our bodies forever you know, they might just pass through, but those, when they pass through, they have a positive effect on us. Like there's a um, microbe that lives in the soil and I can't remember the name of it right now, but it has something to do with vodka um, because it was, it was common. It's common. It has been, it was named that because it was commonly found in areas where cows had grazed, but there's this microorganism and and scientists have shown that when when we're out in nature, that microorganism comes into our bodies and it and it changes our mood it it makes us less depressed it makes mm. us happier and it's it doesn't it doesn't stay it doesn't become permanent member of our microbiome become but it becomes a transient member and it has this positive effect on us so i just I, you know i love that and 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 many times when we're out um Walking around in nature, we are encountering microbes that were once a part of somebody's microbiome, uh, some other human's microbiome. You know, they they left it there. Um, they left that population there, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. We can retake in members of that um, uh, population of microbes uh, back in our body, and and maybe you know, have them reside there. Mm. It's very interesting. We're talking to uh, Dr. Jack Gilbert and he, he was mentioning, mentioning a study that he did about in a hospital, you know, they, 
Um, they had this opportunity building a new hospital, um, taking samples of the um, whatever microbes was, or, was already in there. And then as soon as the hospital got up and running, within 24 hours, the, the microbiome on, on what we call clean surfaces had completely changed. So right. there, there's, there's all this transfer of microbes all the time. Right, right. So, so some of these concepts, I, I feel like when I talk to people, it's hard to know what to do uh, with, with these concepts. Like, I'm interested, Kristen, in, in how have you changed or anything that you've changed in your life, learning about the soil and learning about the microbiome? Oh, every, everything has changed. I mean, I've always had a garden, but I always used to do a lot of digging and, uh, you know, aggressive weeding and things like that. And now I, you know, when I work on my garden, I, I try to do it like the farmers that I admire so much. You know, I don't, I don't do a lot of digging. If I'm going to put in a new plant, I, you know, make a tiny little spot in the soil for it and cover it. I, you know, I try not to disrupt those communities of microbes and uh, beneficial fungi that are in the soil. So I don't, I don't do a lot of digging. I try to keep the surface of my garden uh, covered as much as possible with plants. So I, you know, try to have um, different levels of things growing there. You know, if there's a, trees and then shrubs and then perennials and then maybe some annuals that are filling in the spots around there and some ground covers. I try not to leave any of the soil exposed. I mean, there's always some that is, but, and I, and I do a lot of mulching with, uh, you know, dead leaves and I don't, I don't clear away the, the leaves that fall off the trees. I consider that a valuable asset for feeding the microorganisms in the soil and protecting the soil from rain and, and wind so that's one thing that I do outside. I mean, I've always been careful about not having, you know, horrible chemicals and cleaning products and all that. But I've really just tried to constantly monitor, am I using a, you know, am I being encouraged to use a chemical that I don't need to use? You know, like, I don't need to have fragrance in any product. I mean, it's, it's, if we think about the the microbial community that exists on us and around us everywhere, um, you know, pretty much any chemical that we put out into the environment is affecting that microbial community. So I'm trying not to inflict any more unnecessary chemicals on them. Mm. Um, mm. You know, no fragrances, no... Uh, you know, unfortunately, we we both live in capitalist countries where um, a lot of science goes into making products and a lot of uh, money is invested in advertising to make us think that those products are essential for our well-being and our happiness. But, you know, for the most part, that's not the case. You know, they're just stuff that somebody wants to sell us. So I really try to avoid... Um, you know, any of those chemical products that people are trying to talk me into buying. Mm -hmm. And just to use less. I mean, anytime we use less, um, that works its way back up the pipeline. You know, then somebody has to produce less and somebody has to process less. 
it's uh, it's uh, really all about creating a probiotic life. The, the way that I like to think of it is how do we create life around us? Is sounds exactly like what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know that gets into fermentation as well. I love fermentation, and um, uh, I know uh, Portland has a f- fermentation festival as well, don't they? They do. I haven't been yet, but I sure want to go. I think I was out of town the last couple of times it was running. Is there is there anything uh, in terms of uh, the way that you eat has that has changed because of this? Oh yeah, um, you know, I <laughs> our microbiome likes to have a lot of plant fibers, so I've really, uh, you know, I have I have a vegetable garden. Every morning I start off the day with a big pile of of uh, greens from my garden, you know, unwashed greens from my garden because I I want those, you know, those microbes on there and I want to provide the microbes in my living inside me with all the plant fiber that they can handle. And, you know, and I I like kimchi and I like uh, kombucha and I I love all that stuff. So, Mm, mm -hmm. So, Kristen, uh, looking forward, looking into the future, if you were able to um, see into the future, what what would you see in terms of um, creating healthy soil and creating a probiotic life? What would that look, that look like to you? And if I look into my my wished for future, you know, I would I would see farming change dramatically all over the earth. I would see. Um, uh, you know, the, the big monoculture corn farms and, and wheat and soybean farms, I would see all of that change dramatically so that every farm was a polyculture that had animals, you know, that had animals there. Um, getting rid of the, the waste, the, the, the vegetable matter waste and turning it into very good fertilizer. Um, so I would change farming dramatically. I would protect forests and uh, not not allow any more forests and wildlands to be converted into agriculture. I would really want cities to plan for you know to plan for urban agriculture in the way that we plan for transportation or the way that we plan for you know water treatment. You know. Um, you know, in my ideal world, every city would be sort of a, a daisy wheel of, of agriculture coming in into urban areas where people live so that people can not only get fresh vegetables and eggs and, and dairy, um, but can even participate in the growing of it. Um, Mm. I would, yeah, have, I mean, lots of things, lots of, lots and lots of changes. I would, you know, if we're going to have tall buildings, I would have plants growing up them. I would try to vegetate wherever I could. Um, I would, you know, I, I would want us to be doing all the things to stop doing all the things that disrupt our, our relationships with, with nature. I mean, we are part of nature. We, we've had this, this bizarre fantasy for centuries that we're not part of nature, that we're somehow above nature. Um, and we're not, we're, we're part of nature. We rely on nature. Um, and I would like to see us really embrace nature. I would love to see science really 
much more focused on understanding and harmonizing with nature rather than turning nature into a product. Mm-hmm. I think that is a, a good thought to um, finish up on, you know, uh, using science for our benefit, but also for the benefit of the world around us. Yeah. If anyone wants to find out about what you're doing or, um, or the books that you have written and the one that you are writing, where, where can they find out about that? Well, I have a website. It's uh, www.kristenolson.com. Very easy to find me. I hear from people all the time who have read The Soil Will Save Us, and it's just so gratifying that people around the world are thinking about these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll definitely have a link up there. And uh, yeah, if you haven't gone, uh, if you haven't read the book yet, go out and get a copy for yourself. And um, thank you so much for your time and for uh, joining us here on The Probiotic Life. Great to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for hanging out with us on the episode today. You can find out all about Kristen on her website, kristenolson.com. We'll have the links in the show notes. Uh, Thank you to everyone who is reaching out to us and connecting with us. We love hearing from you. Tell us what you think about this episode or any others that inspire you. A big thank you to everyone who's taken a minute of their time to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen on. And a shout out to Phil and his band Confiture for the tunes in this episode. I'll leave you with the song Hubab from their self-titled album. So may the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.